Please pray with me. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So last Tuesday night, I hosted an election watch party at my house. And there we all gathered, and this particular group, you might have been at similar watch parties elsewhere, this particular group uh, was mostly a Democratic uh, party watch party, but I imagine some of you were at those that were supporting other candidates. And as we were there, we were, uh, we were watching the polls come in, and the polls were coming in a little differently than we had expected, or the results were coming in differently than we had expected. And the atmosphere in the party kept getting darker and darker and darker as the evening wore on. And finally, when I, around midnight, when I thought it couldn't get any darker, I said, we've, we've got to nip this in the bud. We've got to have some sort of levity here. So I went into the uh, refrigerator and pulled out two bottles of very nice champagne that we had saved for what we thought was going to be a different result. And I brought them out and brought out a bunch of glasses and poured them out and gathered everyone together so that we could have a toast to our country. And I even quoted a line from the prophet Jeremiah for good boot, uh, or at least a story from the prophet Jeremiah uh, to round out my, uh, my little toast. Well, after I finished, uh, the mood in the room hadn't actually changed. <laughs> <laughs> and the person immediately to my right, uh, a woman in her mid-40s, a professional, a very successful professional, um, was just bawling, tears streaming down her face. And I put my arm around her and she said, she said, this is very hard for me. She said, I was hoping 45 would be the one. She said, as a woman who struggled in an industry that's dominated by men, uh, I have dealt with a lot of discrimination and sexism, both, impl- both explicitly and implicitly throughout my career. Uh, she said, just last year, her company was looking for a new CEO, and of the like 12 candidates, every single one of them was a man. And she said she was hoping that a woman would finally break that highest of glass ceilings, that there would be a message to especially younger women around that anything was possible. And she, just was, she was just inconsolable. She said, I don't see any politician in the pipeline who might be able to change that. And then next to her was a young man uh, who had been very involved in the hero Uh, discussion here in town, the struggle for the Equal Rights Ordinance. And he had been involved in the Houston Unites group, the group that was in favor of the Equal Rights Ordinance. And he was equally uh, inconsolable. And he said, because it brought back memories of the defeat in the Equal Rights Ordinance. And he said he had such a hard time for that because there were people that he knew who were transgender, good friends of his, uh, who had been targeted in that campaign in order to overturn the ordinance. And he thought of Uh, all the things that might happen to his friends who identified as LGBT under the new administration. Uh, President-elect Trump has promised to appoint Supreme Court justices who will overturn same-sex marriage and who will uphold uh, so-called religious freedom bills that allow for uh, discrimination against LGBT people. And so the the atmosphere didn't improve the rest of the night. We did stay up to hear the final... uh, acceptance speech that uh, Trump gave around two in the morning. Um, but the next morning I woke up and I, and I looked at the passage that I had chosen to preach on today. And it was a passage I had chosen several months ago without any thought for the election. And there, 
in front of me, in the very first line says, let every soul, literally the Greek says soul, let every soul be subject to the governing authorities. And again, the, the, the word here is not just to obey the governing authorities, but literally to be subject, to submit to the governing authorities. And I have to be honest, I was thinking about changing the text. <laughs> but then I, and I paused and I said, you know, there's, there's, there's got to be a message of good news in here. And I certainly know certain people uh, in our country who uh, want to do anything but be subject to the governing authorities. There are protests going on right now across the country and people posting stuff on social media with the hashtag, not my president. Uh, there have been, at last count, I think, protests in 37 different cities across the country up to this point. And yet there's that line, Paul's letter to the Romans. Let every soul be subject to the governing authority. I kept reading that through and I was like, well, Paul might be able to say that, but does, does Paul know someone like Donald Trump? <laughs> and, uh, and then I thought, I said, actually, Paul knows uh, someone by the name of Emperor Nero, um, who, uh, regardless of whether or not you might like Trump or not, there really is no comparison at all between the two of them. Uh, Nero uh, is, goes down in history as one of the worst rulers, uh, one of the worst emperors uh, in certainly the Roman history and, in, uh, and, and is up there with the worst despots in any regime. Nero was someone who, uh, shortly after he came to power, poisoned his younger brother. Uh, he had his mother and his wife, first wife, executed. Uh, he's someone who supposedly stomped his second wife to death while she was pregnant with his second child. Um, he was anything uh, but mentally stable and eventually was uh, overthrown by his own guards. Um, he was also someone who supposedly lit Rome on fire in the year 64, then blamed it on, Christ, blamed it on the Christians. Uh, it was at his hand that the apostles Paul and Peter were killed. Uh, so yeah, so I think Nero's a pretty bad guy. And Paul knew that. And Paul was from Palestine. Palestine had been a place where there had been talk of revolt and revolution for decades. And just a few short years after writing this letter, there was a huge revolt in the year 66, a revolt that lasted four years in Palestine. Paul knew what it was like to be in a place where you disagreed with the people who were in charge. And yet, he writes to the Christians in Rome, let every soul be subject to the governing authorities. And I was trying to think, why? Why say that? One thing that came to my mind is that Paul understands the importance of good order. There are certain people who like to uh, cause trouble and anarchy wherever. They uh, casually talk about revolt. They casually talk about overturning things. But I often wonder if those people have actually read their history books or know what it's like to be in a place without order. Because in almost every situation, disorder is much more destructive than order, even order of a bad kind. Just ask the people in Syria today. Life under Assad was certainly no picnic, but I think you'd be hard-pressed to find too many Syrians who would prefer the current state in Syria to what it was a few years ago. The same thing might be able to be said of Iraq as well. Think of the uh, people that have died since the Iraq war who are Iraqi citizens. 
And again, you look back over history, you can see the great revolutions, uh, the Russian Revolution, the French Revolution, the Chinese Revolution, uh, the revolution with uh, Pol Pot in Cambodia in the mid-70s. In each case, after, after the violence, worse situations happen. In decolonization in Africa, after decolonization, those African uh, republics that dealt with violent overthrows all ended up worse off than they were before. Some people who like embracing revolt uh, look at the American Revolution. But of course, you realize it was the established order that was doing the revolting in the American Revolution. The established order was not overturned. The people who controlled things in the American colonies before the war also controlled things in the American colonies after the war. It was not like an overturning of the order. Disorder is a very dangerous thing to talk about, and Paul knew that. But Paul also lived in the time of the Roman Empire, an authoritarian empire. And we, we live in a democracy. So what it means to be a citizen in a democracy is very different than what it meant to be a citizen in the Roman Empire. And what's amazing is how few citizens actually exercise their right of self-governing. In the most recent election on Tuesday, presidential election, how many people who were eligible voters actually went to the polls? The statistic I heard was 55%, but yeah, in the 50s percent, low, you know, mid to low 50s percent went to the polls. I read it was the second lowest turnout in recent years behind the election of 1996. So nearly half of people who could have gone to the polls didn't, didn't even exercise that right. I've often thought that they're like, they're citizens in this country, and then they're super citizens. That those citizens that merely exist in the country as though it's the Roman Empire, and they have no say at all, and then they're citizens who get fully involved How many people, I'm just taking a guess at these numbers here, but I was, I was trying to play with this in my head. How many people do you think write letters to their congressmen or congresswomen? How many people? I mean, there are roughly 750,000 people per congressional district. I was saying in a year, best case scenario, inclu even including all those like email forms that you sort of like send in, best case scenario, I would guess only 7,500 people in a given district probably write in every year. That's 1%. Only 1% only of the residents of the congressional district actually write to their representatives? That's, that's just a guess, but I, I bet it's not far off. If anything, I'm being generous. Think about that. Any of you can do that, but only 1% actually do? Only 1% want to be super citizens? Okay, how many people do you think show up to city council in Houston every year to advocate for something? I'm guessing max, absolute max upper limit would be 2,000. Max upper limit, 2,000. There are over 2 million people in Houston. That's less than one-tenth of 1% 1 of the people are super citizens in the city of Houston. That's incredible. People decry the effect of lobbyists in our government. These are people who have to register in order to have particular advocacy rights in our state capitals or our national capital. But you know, you can get involved in organizations that have registered lobbyists too. You can be an individual citizen lobbying for things you care about as well. Do you? Let's think about this hero discussion again. How did this all come about? What's this, what's this? I find this amazing. 
The Equal Rights Ordinance in the city of Houston ended up including protection for transgender people because transgender folks were organized and went to the city council and told their stories. And they convinced even the conservative members of the city council to say, yes, our city is a city that should include protections for transgender people. And then other super citizens who didn't like that, that, that agreement, then ended up, ended, up advocate, ended up gathering together a lawsuit that, that challenged the Equal Rights Ordinance and allowed it to get on the ballot and then organized in order to get it overturned. These aren't, actually, the number, the number of people who were involved in making this happen was relatively small. Now, the reason why I actually chose this text several months ago the reason why I actually chose this text is because I knew, uh, I'm going I'm to embarrass him right now, I knew that a friend of mine was visiting this weekend, okay? A guy named Marco Chan, who's sitting right over there. Yes, Marco, I'm embarrassing you. Now, I met Marco his freshman year in college at Harvard. And I got to know him because that year I was organizing, trying to organize a protest tour of the military's Don't Ask, Don't Tell policy. And this was a four-state bus tour where we, were, we, we had targeted four senators on the Armed Services Committee who were up for re-election, and we were going to try and pressure them through acts of civil disobedience and trying to confront them individually to try and bring something forward to overturn Don't Ask, Don't, Ask, Don't Tell. Okay, now this was when George W. Bush was president. We knew it probably wouldn't happen, but we wanted to try. We wanted to do something. Okay, and we're at a college, the good liberal students. And you know, I went from one student after another, one activist student after another, saying, do you want to go on this trip? We scheduled it after classes were over so we could get as many people to go as we could. And yet, student after student after student said, oh, you know, I'm too busy. Or, you know, I'd rather go party during senior week. Or, you know, I've got, my, my, I've got other things to get done. I'd rather go spend time with my family. What shocked me at the time was how few students who had voiced uh, such activist leanings, when it came time to actually get on the bus, we'd, we'd raise all the money for it, you didn't have to pay anything. When it actually came time to get people to come on the bus with us, very few showed up. But Marco did. He was one of the few that was there. He was also a Canadian citizen, so had he actually been, he, he, he couldn't get involved in too much of the civil disobedience because he could have been deported. But nevertheless, there he was. <laughs> holding signs, trying to make a difference. Being a super citizen, even though it wasn't his country. You all can do the same thing. And that's one of my dreams for our church and society board here at FCC. Is to have that board be able to inform us on how we can be super citizens. So that we can make our voices heard that much more. Because that makes a difference. Now there's another interesting thing about this text. Because Paul advocates obeying authorities because he claims that these authorities have been instituted by God. Now, my theology of God is a little different than Paul's, and I do disagree with Paul slightly on this matter. I don't think God controls every action that happens, but I do think God is present in all the actions that happen. And that is what gives me hope. Because I do know that an amazing thing happens when people actually are in a position of power and have to make decisions. When you're in the minority or you're running, it's very easy to throw pot shots. But when you actually are someone who has to make decisions, things look differently. And I pray that God will be present with not only President-elect Trump, but his whole cabinet and those in power so that they will do the right thing. 
I believe that's there. And I think part of our duty as Christians is to call people back to God, to call people to think about the power of love. Last evening, we were here, and some of us were here in this meeting house as we celebrated the wedding of Brian Kozier and Adam Daniels. And again, I honestly don't believe that same-sex marriage will be overturned. I don't think it's going to happen. Because I think when push comes to shove, when the decision actually comes to be made, there are going to be so many couples that have been married that are living as good citizens and loving citizens that I honestly think that that will make a difference and make it so it will not be overturned. Maybe I'm being naive, but I do believe that God is present and God makes a difference. When I was in Ames, Iowa, it was amazing. When people were running for city council in Ames, Iowa, it's a nonpartisan town, so no one had a political affiliation, but you could tell basically where they stood based on how they were campaigning. When they ran, they had all these bold views to change things, and then they got to be on the city council, and it's amazing how moderating that was for everybody. Because you actually had to wrestle with the implications of what it meant. People worry about cuts to social services, but you know what? There are people across the political spectrum who are involved in important nonprofits here in town. And they'll be able to bind together across the political spectrum to say, these are organizations we support. We need to support people in town. We need to support people who are our neighbors. We need to love those who are in need and on those on the margins. I do believe that God is there, and God is there in governing. And part of our job is to call that out and point it out to people. Now, when you leave worship today, and if your car is parked in that parking lot, and you walk down the Heritage Walkway, as you get right about by the church office and you look down, there's a quotation that's etched in one of those blocks. And as I was thinking about this sermon this week, that quotation kept coming back to me. It's a quotation from Reinhold Niebuhr from his work, The Irony of American History. And in that work, Niebuhr wrote, Nothing that is worth doing can be achieved in our lifetimes. Therefore, we must be saved by hope. Think about that. Nothing that is worth doing can be achieved in our lifetimes. Therefore, we must be saved by hope. Nothing which is true or beautiful or good makes complete sense in any immediate context of history. Therefore, we must be saved by faith. Even things like this election and the strong partisan feelings we have They actually don't make complete sense in any immediate context of history. Therefore, we have to be saved by faith. And nothing that we do can be accomplished alone. Therefore, we must be saved by love. As you leave today, keep those thoughts in mind. We are people of faith. We are on a long journey. But we're on a journey where God is there. And also remember that in a democracy, the governing authority is actually the people. So when Paul says, let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, it means let every subject be subject, let every soul be subject to you and the voice that you make heard. May that continue to motivate us in the months and years ahead.